Smartcast. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This week on Sonic Impact, a 21-year-old Rolling Stones fan convinces the band to play a small club gig and gets the thrill of a lifetime. Anyone who's ever been to a Rolling Stones show knows that they're always introduced, ladies and gentlemen, the Rolling Stones. So I'm 21 years old, and I stand up on this tiny stage, and I walk up to the mic and say, ladies and gentlemen, I cannot fucking believe this. The Rolling Stones. <laughs> Greatest night of my life. Hey, welcome back to Sonic Impact. It's Elliot. And Olivia. Hey, Olivia. How's it going? It's going pretty good. How are you, Dad? Really good. We're halfway through our second season, and the response continues to be surprisingly good. The stories have been great. Kiss, Beastie Boys, Pearl Jam. But, you know, we're going to have to get your Sonic Impact in there pretty soon. Yeah. I mean, I don't have any crazy huge story like some of these people. And I don't have a lifelong story of devotion because I'm only 21. But I can definitely come up with something. Hey, a sonic impact is a sonic impact, right? Speaking of sonic impacts, I think we have to start today's episode talking about the Super Bowl. Rihanna, who absolutely destroyed the Super Bowl, her first live performance in seven years, I think it was. I was absolutely blown away. First of all, the bitch is pregnant. She opens standing in the sky with a baby in her belly. Like, who does that? And it was just such an unbelievable production. And she sounded and looked so good. And the backup dancers was just insane. They were so good. And then I read some analyses of it and it was talking about how like these backup dancers are the sperm and there's different stages of the performance where it's like all representing the sperm and the egg and it's wild i think she put a lot of thought into it i heard a lot of positive reaction and i heard some negative reaction but the bottom line is when everyone found out she was pregnant and she had just had a baby i think it put in perspective what a moving and incredible performance after not being on the stage for, she said, six years. So you got to give it up to Rihanna and the dancers. It just felt like she was literally flying. I love how they chose literally a mashup of all her most popular songs, but it was so fun. Like, being able to hear her sing those songs. I've never seen her live. I've actually only become a big fan in like recent years. But in the past few years, she's really, really grown on me. And I've discovered a lot more of her music and her style. And she's just a bad bitch. She's so beautiful. She's just like, just such a boss. And I look up to her. Yeah, screw all the haters. I don't know who had a bad thing to say about this. If they did, they're just jealous that they couldn't be soaring above the Super Bowl with a baby in their belly with the whole world watching. So moving on to the other big event of the last few weeks, which we haven't had a chance to talk about, is the Grammys. I thought one of the most surprising and heartfelt moments was Bonnie Raitt's win for Best Song, a song that no one had ever heard of. 
Bonnie Raitt's like in her 70s, and she's up against all the greatest artists of today from Harry Styles and Adele and Taylor Swift. And Bonnie Raitt wins. And I'm going, what is going on? And then I hear her talking about the backstory of the song, this true story about this woman whose son died and she donated his heart to science and decades later comes to find her. This is all in this song. It's called Just Like That. Here's a little snippet. Just like that your life can change Look what the angels send I lay my head upon his chest I was with my boy again Well, I spent so long in darkness I never thought the night would end But somehow grace has found me I'm so happy that she won and that the Academy was able to make that unexpected choice because I really think she deserves it for that piece of art. It's so beautiful. And especially with me going through grief right now and thinking so much about how it's not talked about enough and not normalized, this is just a really beautiful story about love and loss. And I'm really glad that the Grammys has brought attention to it because to be honest I don't even know who she is before this so um but I'm really happy for her that well that's a different story Bonnie Raitt is a very accomplished singer songwriter but what amazed me about it is how you can tell such a clear emotional true story with this beautiful lyric and melody and guitar all comes together and it just hits you like a ton of bricks that the heart of her dead son saved another man's life. And you can visualize the whole thing. That to me is songwriting at another level. I think this song really did deserve it because there's nothing else I've ever heard like it. Yeah, I think all music is storytelling, but this is a very specific kind in that it's a true story and it's not a story that's hers, but she was able to empathize and be so moved by this story she heard of someone she didn't even know that compelled her to write a song about it. And I love the line when she says, it was your son's heart that saved me and a life you gave us both. It's so beautiful. And I'm really glad she won. It packs an emotional wallop like very few songs I've ever heard. I mean, I cried when that when she puts her head upon his chest and realizes she's given life again. I mean, wow. On a bit of a lighter note, I have to shout out Beyonce and just recognize the person with the most Grammys of all time, not to mention a black woman. I mean... I can't even imagine how she feels. I don't know. She's she's a queen. All right, from a queen to a king. The king of rock and roll fandom, our guest today, Rob Barnett. But before we get to Rob, let's talk about the Stones. What else is actually there to say about the Stones? We don't really have to set up the history of Mick and Keith and how they formed. So let's talk about the moment when this happened, 1981. What was going on with the Stones? Yeah, this is kind of hard to believe. It was August 24th, 1981, and this was their 18th album, Tattoo You. 18th. It's insane that they were able to create so much music for such an extended period of time. Yeah, the Beatles had 13 albums. So let's give props to the Stones who are still touring, even though they've lost a couple band members. Yes. So this was their 18th album. It's mostly composed of studio outtakes recorded during the 70s, but it contains some of the band's most well-known songs, like Start Me Up, which hit number two on US Billboard's single charts. And Start Me Up, by the way, is one of their most iconic songs. It's the song that often starts up their concert. It's just got that driving hook. And it's become sort of an anthem for the Stones. So you have to go back in time to this moment where it was just being released. Yeah, I think it's really interesting because 
Like I said, most of these were old studio outtakes, and that was because of a combination of touring obligations and that some of the band members were fighting, and it made it difficult to arrange recording sessions in which they were able to get anything done. So they just looked through the unused recordings from prior sessions. Which, when you think about it, this album is one of their great albums. It's not like it's a bunch of throwaway songs. I mean, Start Me Up, Waiting on a Friend, there's a bunch of incredible songs. So... Kudos to the Stones for going through their like unreleased tracks and making a classic album. But the work was worth it because this album was both a critical and commercial success, and it's one of their top albums according to the charts. It concluded the band's string of eight consecutive number one albums dating back to 1971's Sticky Fingers. And in 1989, it was ranked number 34 on Rolling Stone magazine's list, of the 100 greatest albums of the 80s. And so what this moment is about, 1981, is the tour. And the Stones really are known for being the greatest rock and roll band. This was this moment when they were getting ready for their tour. And in those days, those tours were the biggest tours in rock and roll. The circus would come to town, and it was the Rolling Stones. So our guest today is Rob Barnett. Rob's career is too massive to encapsulate in a couple of sentences, but the key things are he was an executive at VH1 and MTV during their heyday. So he was around every artist, every major special. He also was the president of CBS Radio. He is truly a music connoisseur a music fanatic, has more institutional music knowledge than almost anyone I've ever talked to. But this story, we find Rob at 21 years old. He's just become a radio DJ at Worcester, Massachusetts, and he stumbles upon the scoop of a lifetime. This is the Rolling Stones' sonic impact on Rob Barnett. Rob Barnett, joining us on Sonic Impact. How you doing, Rob? I am great. Thank you so much for the invite. So, Rob, you've had an incredible career connected to music, but I want to go back to the beginning. Where did you grow up? When did you discover the Rolling Stones? Tell us about that moment. Well, I was a kid that grew up in both New York and New Jersey from six, seven, eight years old, obsessed with rock and roll. I was so lucky to have parents that were so good to me that I usually win the what's your first concert game because in 1967, my parents took me to Forest Hills Tennis Stadium in New York where the opening act was Jimi Hendrix and the headliner was the Monkees. I knew that Jimi Hendrix warmed up the Monkees. I can't believe you were at that show. What was that memory like? There's two things that I remember about my first concert. Well, if you take your two palms and you cup them and you put them over your ears. I remember that it sounded like that for about a week. It blew out my hearing. The visual that I remember, cops with billy clubs beating kids that were trying to rush the stage to touch the monkeys. Those are the only two things I remember, the bad audio and that kind of violent visual. And you don't remember Jimi Hendrix. That's the funny part of the story. You literally I swear to God, it. it breaks my heart. I don't remember, but I was there. I will just quickly share my first weird concert experience was my parents took me to my first concert. I was probably six, seven years old to Bob Dylan. They thought it was the folk Bob Dylan, but it was the Christian rock Bob Dylan. And they were so freaked out. We left the concert, but Bob Dylan was my first. So I get it that you were obsessed by rock and roll like I was, and every means you could, buying records, listening to the radio, that was the only way you could get it back then. So when is it that you hear the Stones, and what does that moment do for you? Well, you're right, because by the time I was eight years old, I started going to places like EJ Corvettes, for anybody that grew up in the New York area, buying records. So you see the wall behind me, and the wall has thousands of albums, thousands of CDs, thousands of cassettes. But I started getting all that when I was about eight years old. I can remember hearing Stone songs. The first album that I got was Hot Rocks, that double collection of a lot of their greatest hits. But then I have to kind of push it up to 1975. 
I'm 15 years old. I'm listening to my favorite radio station, WNEW FM in New York, and they are live broadcasting from the streets of New York where the Rolling Stones are coming down Fifth Avenue on a flatbed truck playing live to announce a new tour. And that blew my mind. And I not only listened to that, but I got concert tickets in 1975 the way we always used to get concert tickets, by sleeping out on the street the night before they went on sale. My mother, God rest her soul, allowed me to do this crazy shit as a teenager, sleeping on the pavement outside Madison Square Garden waiting for tickets. So my first Stone show was at the Garden in 75. And yes, I don't have the monkeys ticket, but I have all the tickets to all the shows that I've ever been to sitting right over there. You are an obsessive music fan like myself, but much more so when I'm looking at your records behind you and your CDs. It's pretty awesome. Just to digress for a second. I have that story, too, of waiting outside. I was in Madison, Wisconsin. I went to college there, and Sting was coming after they broke up with the police. And I waited in like five below all night to get those Sting tickets. We just sat there and froze our butt off. But that's what you did. There was no easy way like now. Yes. And in the mid-70s, I also had a rock band. I'm a drummer. I started playing drums when I was 13. So we were playing tons of stones. Our most important gigs were where most bands' important gigs were, in the basement. But we did have <laughs> a couple of paying gigs. We played around Jersey and uh, did a ton of stones covers. So let's go back to the concert. What tour was that? And take me back to that experience of seeing the Stones for the first time at 15. Well, again, you know, my concert going started when I was seven. So by the time it got to like, let's say 71, 72, 73, 74, and 75, I was going to a lot of concerts. I was seeing some of the greatest rock bands of all time in their prime, Zeppelin, McCartney tours, Rod Stewart, Black Sabbath, Allman Brothers. I was a huge Allman Brothers fan, but I latched on to the Stones. There was something about the Stones that made me feel like that is my band, but there was definitely this energy from a Stone show at the age of 15 that hit me and the mix of that intensity and the blues and the sexiness of it, it, it just really infected me. Well, you saw them at their prime. I mean, that's the difference. We've all seen them when they're like in their 70s and 80s, and they are the greatest rock and roll band, many people say, because of that live experience. For certain. And, you know, the band was going into a new phase at that point. That was when Ron Wood joined the band. A lot of people are really in love with the album Black and Blue that came out around that time. So, yes, you're right. They were really in a very, very vital period. It was just incredibly powerful. And that was the beginning of the elaborate stage shows and performance and design. You know, for Stones fans, a lot of people know that Charlie Watts, rest his soul, Charlie was the guy who really took an interest in creating these elaborate stage shows. When I first saw them, I think it was like a lotus flower that like opened up electronically and the Stones came out of this thing. We're very used to the presentations in the 90s and the O's of these wild, elaborate architectural stage setups, but they were the first to do it. How many times would you say you've seen the Stones in your life? I'm not one of these crazy psychos that counts, but the way I can probably answer it is say if 75 was my first tour, I'm pretty sure I can safely say I've seen all their tours since. That's got to be 15, 20 -ish times. Oh, yeah. Do you ever see him multiple times on a, on a tour or just once? Oh, no, I go to multiples, yeah. Let's talk about the music of the Stones and why that music spoke to you at that age. So what was it about the music, the lyrics, the sound of the Stones? I think what got me most interested is that they really began as a blues band. But by the time they were into the early and mid-70s, 
you were hearing country, disco, you were hearing folk, you were hearing punk. There's stuff on some girls that's punk. And I was obsessed with punk. And so here were the Stones just able to be these intense chameleons that brought all these other musics into what you just called them, the world's greatest rock band. So the Stones involved so many different styles of music that really spoke to me. Well, I also think when you think about this band, you've got that incredible guitar riffs of Keith Richards and, of course, Ron Wood. You've got Charlie Watts, which one of the great just solid rock drummers of all time. And then Mick Jagger's arguably the greatest showman rock star. So you put that all together and then their lyrics, the writing, the vocals, everything. It was it was sort of a mix of so many powerful elements, I think. And let's give the man his due, ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Bill Wyman, one of the only people who's decided to walk away from the right. greatest rock and roll band in the history of the world. But oh my God, if not for Bill Wyman, you know, they wouldn't have had that beautiful connection that was the core of the band, Charlie Watts and Bill. So as a drummer, was there an influence of Charlie Watts on your playing? Yes. At 13, I didn't just have the drum set, I had to go back to Manny's on 48th Street in New York and buy a cowbell because of Honky Tonk Woman. I had to get the cowbell. So yeah, I mean, I just worshiped the guy. So for you, the Stones were obviously a major driver. I know you said there were lots of bands, but it must have inspired you or been part of the inspiration to get into a career in music. So what was sort of your first leap into a job where you were combining your love of rock and a career? Well, what happened as a teenager is that I wanted to play the music as much as I could. But every single time my band played, I asked myself if I thought I was good enough to go for a life as an artist. And the answer that secretly came back in my little mind was no. But I felt that the closest that I could get was to be the rock writer for the high school newspaper so that I wouldn't just go to shows and do what I always did, which is, by the way, yes, I was a taper. So I taped all the shows that I saw in the 70s on a little cassette recorder. I'll imitate for you now what all my shows sound like. I'll give you Zeppelin at Madison Square Garden in the 70s on one of my cassettes. Are you ready? I'm ready. <laughs> That's what they all sound like. But to me, I remember what it felt like to be there because I have all the audio on Memorex cassettes. Okay. So here's what people these days don't understand. You were not allowed to tape shows back then. You could get kicked out for taping shows. It was illegal. And now everybody can tape everything on their phones. Obviously it's changed, but that was a big deal to steal that audio, to hide your recorder. Just for me, you know, so that when I went to Night of the Hurricane, Bob Dylan, four and a half hours, Madison Square Garden, I could go back and listen to it. It's great. Yeah. You're a lucky man. I did that. And then I wrote for the high school newspaper. So I felt like I didn't just go to all the concerts. I didn't just tape all the concerts. I had to review them as if I worked at Rolling Stone. That led to my first moments in college. I went to Boston University. So in the first two weeks in freshman year, the RA on the floor came down the hall one day and started bragging that he was a disc jockey at the campus radio station. And if we wanted to come down and watch him do his radio show, we were welcome. So one day I went down there. I saw this guy, bless his heart. He was about 320 pounds. He was on that mic talking and I just looked at him and I thought, this is it. This is what I want. And that led to a radio show at that campus radio station. By the way, it's called WTBU, the exact same radio station where just a couple of years earlier, Howard Stern got his start. So that's where I started. 
And I started to fall in love and fall in love fast and hard and dropped out of college. So I'm assuming that stint on your college radio led to a career in radio for you and put you front and center of rock and roll. So what was your first paying job as a disc jockey? My first paying job as a disc jockey was on a radio station called WAAF in Worcester, Mass, about 30 plus miles outside of Boston. And the first night that I was on the radio was the night before John Lennon was murdered. I was the weekend DJ, and that's how I got my start there at the end of 1980. Wow, you're taking me back to a moment I'll never forget, and anyone who was alive at that time will never forget. Let's go back to the Stones. Where did the Stones intersect with you along the way in your career? Well, I'm working at this radio station. I had been promoted from a weekend disc jockey to a full-time disc jockey. Then I was promoted to be the music director. This is in 1981. And about 15 or 20 minutes away from where I lived, there was a farm. And on this farm, there was a recording studio. The farm was called Longview Farm. And in the 70s, a lot of the greatest Boston bands like Aerosmith and the Jay Giles Band recorded their albums at this working studio that was on a working farm. It had beautiful, elaborate barns and just acres and acres of land. And it was run by a Renaissance man named Gil Markle. So late one night, I got off the radio and I went to a local bar and I saw one of the sound engineers from Longview Farm. And he had had a few. And then he had a few more. (laughs) <laughs> and maybe another one. And I said, hey, man, how's it going? He, he was pretty wasted. He goes, oh, great. I said, who's coming? What bands are coming? Can you tell me what's up? And he gave me this really strange look. And he said, I, I can't. I go, what do you mean? He goes, I can't tell you. He goes, I'll get fired. And I could tell that there was some heavy thing going on. So I got him to tell me something. He said, The stones are coming, but if you tell anyone, I'll be fired. And I said, (laughs) I swear I will not tell anyone that you told me. Ah, there's a distinction. So the next morning, I called my friend Gil, who owned Longview Farm. And I said, Gil, it's Rob. How you doing? (laughs) And he goes, good. I said, I know. He said, what are you talking about? I said, I know the thing that no one's allowed to know. I said, the stones are coming. He goes, Rob, who told you that? I said, Gil, I can't tell you that. Oh, man. And I said, Gil, you know, I went to journalism school, and it's my job as a journalist to go down the hall into the studio and tell our listeners that the Rolling Stones are coming, but I realized that that would be difficult. He said, Rob, nobody knows that they're coming. This is a secret. You would ruin everything. I said, Gil, you have my word. I will not tell. A couple days later, the Stones have arrived. Okay. Now the Stones are there secretly to rehearse for the upcoming world tour in 1981 for the album that's about to be released called Tattoo You, the album that has Start Me Up. How many years after you first saw them at 15 are we talking here? Like you've been a fan now for 10 years? 75 was my first show. So this is only six years later, right? But you were a fan of theirs for years before even you saw them. So it's been about 10 years. You've been obsessive Stones fan. This is a big deal. This is a big deal. And my heart is already beating a million miles an hour. So I call staff at the farm And I understand that they've arrived, but it is the tightest secret in the world. There's all kinds of security. And on one particular day in what had to have been just the first couple of days, I get a tip. The tip is that Mick is going to leave the farm and go to Philadelphia to announce the dates for the upcoming world tour. Now, in... Worcester, Mass., we had an airport that was about the size of a postage stamp. So I put two and two together, and I thought, if Mick is going to Philly, he's going to use Worcester Airport. So on this particular day, 
I get my news director with one of these old-fashioned great tape recorders, and we drive out to Worcester Airport in the afternoon that we understand he will be either going to or coming back from Philadelphia, and we hide in a bush on a runway. Oh, my God. There's no one else at this airport. Yeah, I'll just walk onto the tarmac. Because it's like a little private, tiny little thing. And we waited there for what must have been at least an hour or two. And sure enough, we see this tiny little plane coming out of the sky. And I feel like this is it. You know, it wasn't like some crazy zillionaire thing, but it was a small like four-seater. And the plane lands and it taxis on the runway and the door opens and the first person to get out was a man that looked like a mountain. This man's name was Callahan and Callahan was security chief for the Rolling Stones. Oh, hi, Callahan. Nice to meet you. Yeah. About nine foot, 11 inches, 747 pounds. He comes out first. My friend Gil comes out second, looks at me with a what the F are you doing here look, and the third human being to walk out is Mick Jagger. Now, I've got a microphone in my hand, and I walk right up to Mick. Security doesn't punch me in the face or throw me to the ground, and I say, Mick, 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 I'm Rob. Can we talk to you for a minute? And he looked at me and said something the way I remember it was something along the lines of, sure, I got to take a piss first. That's amazing that this massive rock star on the runway of this little airport would even give you the time of day. Like he would just blow you off. But why did he even think he would talk to you? You know, I've asked myself the same question, Elliot, for a million years. And the truth is that I had lost this cassette. For decades and decades and decades, I had the original. It's right up here. I had this original recording on this cassette. Here it is. It's a Scotch Dyna Range 60-minute cassette. <laughs> and it was in a box. Wait, it my- just has a piece of paper in it. I can see Jagger something, interview. Jagger interview. <laughs> <laughs> That's very high tech there, Rob. Isn't it hysterical? That's this history, is the original cassette. And it was in one of my 80 zillion boxes with my 4,000 MTV shows and my 5,000 VH1 shows. And I didn't know where it was. And then about a year and a half ago, there was this freakish flood in New York and New Jersey. And I had a lot of my precious stuff in the basement. I lost a lot of my 62 years of life in that flood but I found the Jagger cassette and saved it and digitized it. And the quality is actually really good. I listened to it and you can really hear Mick clearly. And like, it sounds like he's totally happy to talk to you. It does, doesn't it? You know, it's shocking how nice he was. We just connected. Let's play a little clip of that. I want the audience to actually hear a little of this. A local paper printed an article that said that the Rolling Stones are rehearsing in the area. They went yeah. out to a tennis court right, yeah. and they handed out cigarettes of questionable legality. Oh, yeah, really, yeah. respond to that? The people always want to put things on you, you know, like, you know, uh, aren't true. You know, I never, I never would like, hand a uh, joint to some local kid. I mean, you know, what am I going to do that for? Yeah. You know, and the, but I mean, they write newspapers always want to write what they write, you know, what they want, you know, and they want to color up the piece a little bit, you know what I mean? They, it doesn't matter who's there. I mean, I always, Keith wasn't there, but they said he was there, you know, with heavy gold chains and all <laughs> stuff like that. You know, in reality, he wasn't even there. Who knows? You know, well, that's just the way I guess they make a living, but, but it's not true, you know. I think it's, it's a bit, the only thing is, it's like a bit annoying to be portrayed as a sort of, vilified local guy that's like taking like disrupt the quiet of a local local (laughs) youth or something which it isn't even true you know what I mean but uh, I never would offer a joint or offer anything to a local kid I'm not that crazy (laughs) okay so you could hear for yourself just amazing now what was in my mind when I knew that I was having this life-changing moment I was such a Stones fan that I knew that they had about three or four years earlier, 1977, I knew that the Stones 
snuck into a club in Canada, and I had a bootleg of that. It was a rare bootleg at the time, but it kind of made this really incredible impression on me the same way I thought in 1975 when they rolled down Fifth Avenue secretly playing on a flatbed truck. I thought, these guys are like anarchists in rock and roll. They've got this, you know, method that is just so surprising. I just love the fact that the greatest rock and roll band in the world carried with them this element of surprise. And that may get to the root of why Mick would actually talk to a young guy with a on an airport with a with a tape recorder. So therefore, one of the first things I said when I got to meet Mick Jagger for the first time ever, I said something like, well, if you're here rehearsing for a tour, wouldn't it be great to play a club? I just said it. I pitched him and he answered. What did he say? He said, yeah, club's good, you know, but a theater's good too. But a club, I mean, maybe 300 people. I mean, you got to kind of play to more people than that. But he was thinking about it. You know, I was face to face with him. I hit him with the concept and you could see it kind of going through his head. I've had these moments. I did it on my episode where I met Neil Finn. I've met other big stars. And it's really like when you're going to ask the girl to dance when you're a teenager and yes and you are like the hairs on the back of your neck you can't speak and you're just it's like lightning bolt in your brain and but it's so awesome because you just as a kid growing up with these guys you're like i'm sitting there next to mick jagger asking him a question it also gets to the fact of why we went into this business in many ways because we wanted to be close to this world, right? And you would never have that opportunity. You had the legitimacy of being a journalist, right? I had this moment once when I went to a press conference with Ringo Starr and I got to ask Ringo a question. I stood up and asked a question. It was a dumb question, but I was like, I asked a Beatle a question in a press conference. It was the greatest moment. It's awesome. Yeah, it's awesome. What was the question? Are you going to get back together with the Beatles? (laughs) Next question. (laughs) I was like 24 years old. That's great. So was there more to that story after you did the interview? What came from that in terms of a career or your feelings about being a journalist? Well, I interviewed Mick. I got in my car with my news director, Lana Jones. May she rest in peace. And we drove back at about 187 miles an hour to the radio station to play this exclusive Mick Jagger interview on the air for the world to hear. I remember that somehow NBC's syndicated radio network found out about it, so it got shared all around the nation. And after playing that interview, I started to type something called Rolling Stones Secret Club Gig. And I envisioned that my new greatest ever friendship with Mick Jagger (laughs) would allow him to consider the idea that our rock radio station could help them pull off a secret surprise club gig. So I typed it out that night. I made one for each of the band. And then I somehow arranged to interview Bill Wyman, the bass player of the Rolling Stones, so that I could get back face-to-face with another Rolling Stone. So you got two of five now. You're, you're making now progress. I got two of five. I'm rocking. And after the interview, I hand Bill my copies of this pitch. And I said, Bill, you know, I was with Mick the other day and- I was hanging with Mick at the airport, Bill. Yeah. And I talked about this club thing. It would mean a lot if you could, you know, share this with the band. So I gave it to him. Now, at this point, the community has learned that the Rolling Stones are there. Everybody knows. It's out. However, a couple of times late at night, I drove out to a cow pasture near the farm. And I stood out in a cow pasture with a handful of other crazed Rolling Stones fans listening to the Rolling Stones rehearse all night long for hours and hours. That is so cool. That is such an amazing memory out in a cow pasture. In the middle of the night. So one night 
I go back to my house in Worcester. I crawl into bed five o'clock in the morning and the phone rings and I pick it up. And there's a British voice on the other line. And he says, hello, Rob. This is Ian Stewart. I'm here with Mick Jagger. We'd like to talk to you. Oh, now, my God. Now, for the uninitiated, Ian Stewart, may he rest in rock and roll heaven. I love you. I love you. I love you. Ian Stewart was essentially the sixth Rolling Stone. His face was never on the albums, but Ian Stewart was one of the greatest boogie-woogie piano players of all time. He was also, at the time, functioning, in essence, as their road manager, and he was kind of like their uncle. He was like the older brother. You know, he was the guy that kind of took care of them. And I knew who Ian Stewart was when he called, and now my heart is leaping out of my chest. He says he's here with Mick. <laughs> Calling Rob at five in the morning in his little apartment. And of course, my mind is, oh my God, they better not know where I was because that's creepy and weird. <laughs> you know, like I, <laughs> I was nervous. I was really nervous. And the God's honest truth is Mick didn't speak, but Ian did the talking. And Ian said, we've read your proposal. It's very interesting. And we'd like to follow up. Is it possible that we can meet? Wow. This story just keeps getting more insane every minute. So somehow, maybe the next day, maybe two days later, we meet at a place that's no longer there, but it was one of these great old New England old pubs and inns. It was called the Paxton Inn. And I went and had my first afternoon of many, many beers and hours of conversations with Ian Stewart from the Rolling Stones about this crazed idea and the possibility of whether or not we could pull off a secret Stones gig for their fans to promote the new tour. So he never brought the other three you still needed to meet yet. Just Ian. Ian was the guy. And this was the core of the pitch. I said, look, we could go on the air the afternoon of a secret gig, just hours before you guys want to take the stage, and we would announce that there's a secret Rolling Stones gig happening tonight somewhere in New England. We would give no indication of where this was, but here comes the strangest part of the story. And to this day, I'll never know why Mick Jagger and the Rolling Stones allowed us to pull this off. We said that the way we could distribute tickets to a secret gig was to ask the fans of WAAF to go out on the streets of New England proudly displaying our logo, <laughs> our four letters on their car, on their body, holding signs painted on their face. And then we said that we would be out on the street in unmarked cars with the Rolling Stones handing out free tickets to people who could show us two forms of identification and promise to keep the location a secret because the show was going to take place in only a few hours. So, of course, Mick wasn't driving around in the car with me. Ian Stewart was. <laughs> well, he was a member of the Stones. He was a member of the Stones. But we were driving around, and there are pictures of this that you can find all over the internet. Thousands and thousands and thousands of people lining the streets, giving us the single greatest radio station promotion of all time because they're proudly displaying our call letters. It's genius. insane, right? It's genius. It's genius. It's insane. So you get the Stones to play this club gig for 300 people in Worcester, Massachusetts. Rob, congratulations, first of all. What was that show like? Beyond everything else, you're going to get to see the Stones in a club. It's more than that. I got to introduce them. Wow. So I walk out on stage. Now, anyone who's ever been to a Rolling Stones show knows that they're always introduced with simple words. The final words always are, Ladies and gentlemen, the Rolling Stones. That's the classic intro. So I'm 21 years old, 
and I stand up on this tiny stage with 300 of our listeners packed into this tiny club like sardines, and I walk up to the mic and say, ladies and gentlemen, I cannot fucking believe this, the Rolling Stones. (laughs) That was the first of what has now luckily been many, many times that I've got to be with the Rolling Stones and interview them and work with them throughout the whole rest of my life after the age of 21. But that night, I was the guy who said, come on out, guys. (laughs) And they played on that stage, greatest night of my life. And was that show truly like a remarkable way to see them? You know, I still believe that one of the greatest experiences that a fan can have is to see the biggest bands in the world in the tiniest venues. But I also believe that one of the greatest experiences the biggest bands in the world can have is to be back in the place they started in a tiny, dingy club playing face-to-face with their audience. There's a through line in a lot of these stories that my guests do something sort of unbelievably outrageous to get close to the band. You on a tarmac and putting this pitch together. It's like, it's really ballsy of a young guy, but I think, isn't that sort of like the core of what a journalist or a TV producer does? They have that. I will not stop until I at least try to get this done. You know, you just made me realize, cause I've loved listening to so many of the episodes of your podcast that we must all have a little Cameron Crow in us, right? Because you're either going to be them or you're going to figure out how to be as close to them as you can be, because that fire, that passion is the power that made us choose our friends, sing the songs we've sung to our kids. The music of the bands that we love the most have literally defined the lives of everyone that's a true rock and roll fan. So the idea that you want to be as close to that as possible is not a difficult thing to figure out, but pulling it off just requires this sense of wonder and magic that, hey, maybe anything's possible, and if you ask, you'll get it, and if you don't, you won't. I don't know if you listen to the Beastie Boys episode, but it's very similar. I called it the almost famous episode because he's like a teenager who gets to go to Lollapalooza to interview the Beastie Boys. And it's such balls to do it. I mean, I walk up to Neil Finn and say, Neil, will you play a song with me? Who does that? So Rob, was there another one or two incidents though that really stand out for you about your connection with the Stones? The next time I got a chance to spend a lot of time with the Rolling Stones was in 2005. In that year, I had this lofty job title. I was the president of CBS Radio. So after my years at VH1, where we had done Behind the Music, and I created a radio show that was called The Naked Truth. And I was interviewing a lot of the greatest artists in music. So in 05, I got a chance to fly up to Toronto where the Stones were again rehearsing for what would be an upcoming world tour. And I booked four one-on-one interviews with Mick, Charlie, Keith, and Ron. And I got to go into each of their dressing rooms and say, hey, remember 1981 (laughs) and Worcester? And we just had the greatest time talking about a new Stones album, and an upcoming new Stones tour. But when I was with Keith in his dressing room, Ian Stewart had passed at that point. And we talked a lot about Ian, which was so emotional because Keith loved him so much. And I loved him because that man changed my life forever. And as I was getting ready to say what I thought was my goodbye to Keith, he said, where are you going? I said, home. And Keith said, you're not going home. I said, what? He said, you're not going home. He said, we're doing it again tomorrow night. You want to go? And I said, can I call my wife in New Jersey? (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> and he said, call her. And we got to see them do it again in Toronto. Oh you know, it's funny when my guests tell these stories, it gets very emotional sometimes and it brings back a lot of memories from their childhood. It, it taps into something that we lose, that innocence, that moment of discovery and that connection to this artist. How do you put into words what this band ultimately did for your career? It must have changed the trajectory of your life and your career. Well, it did. It did. And it first put my radio station on the worldwide map. Everybody knew that that night was a game-changing moment for a little rock radio station. It was a beautiful experience. I hope they gave you a raise. Well, I was promoted not long after that to the big job called program director. And then in 1982, they built a major arena then called the Centrum in Worcester right across the street from our radio station. And when they did that, a lot of the shows in Boston started to come to this brand new arena. So we got to pull off all kinds of stunts with some of the greatest rock bands in the world because we had the confidence that anything was possible if you asked the coolest bands in the world to do crazy shit. So- at the core, it's about the music though, right? Yes, it's about the rock star thing. It's about Keith and Mick, how cool they are. But at the end of the day, it's about the music and how this music moved you. Try to explain how the music of the Stones put you on this journey and led you to this incredible career. Well, I learned so much from being around them. And I remember one time I was talking to Keith and I asked him what I thought was kind of a deep question. I said... Do you live life the way you do because of a sense of fearlessness? And he thought about it, and he looked back at me, and he said, fearless. No, it's not that. It's that I can't be anyone else other than who I really am. And it was such a beautiful expression of the way I've always thought about Keith which is one of the purest rock souls there is. Somebody who is in this for one thing, the music. Did you see the documentary? It's just a solo doc about Keith. It's beautiful. It's something really worth watching if you've never seen it. And his book. The book is amazing because people were surprised to realize that Keith remembers all of it. He remembers everything that happened. It's a beautiful book. I highly recommend that book and that documentary as a way of realizing that in the end, it isn't about the paparazzi and the stories and drugs. It's about the purity and the love of rock and roll. And there's no band that is as committed to that as the Rolling Stones. You're a lucky man to have lived close to that aura of what the Rolling Stones are. Not many people can say that about any band, but that band, and again, to go back to what this show is about, that at 15 or 13, that they so inspired you to play drums, to go into radio, to then have this insane moment where you're going to pitch them this idea. It all feeds on each other. So I have to think you look back at that journey with them and you got to pinch yourself. Every day. <laughs> I have a framed piece on my wall. There were no audio recordings, no video recording, no film recording was allowed that night, but I was allowed with my radio station to hire a great rock photographer. We have hundreds of beautifully professionally shot black and white images from that night. Wow. And then not long after the show, I got the band to sign them all for us. And, uh, I look at it every day and just say, anything is possible. I always end with the same question to everybody. What would be the five Keystone songs for you? There's so many to choose from, I know, and that's very hard. But if you could pick five, what are they? Wow, that is so hard. Well, the first one has to be Start Me Up because that was the moment that I got to work with the Rolling Stones. That riff and that song and that moment in time 
is the touchstone of this greatest rock and roll memory of my unbelievably lucky life. But then I'd have to go early, and maybe the early one that really hit me as a kid would be Jumpin' Jack Flash. I love the Some Girls album so much. I love everything on it. I'm going to have to get back to you on a top five. I can't do it. You know, I've got thousands and thousands of albums on this wall behind me. I can't top five anything. I refuse to answer your question. Uh, I'll do a couple. Satisfaction. I mean, we could go on and on and on. Give me shelter. Give me I don't shelter. That might have to squeeze into top five. Exactly. I think Mick and Keith would agree with you. Rob, this has been an epic discussion story. I have thoroughly enjoyed the detail and your memory. It's always amazing when you have a mind meld with other passionate music fans, especially rock and roll fans. And I always find it's emotional, it's funny, and it just makes you feel alive again. As we get older, we don't always have those moments. And to go back to that moment where this happened, the spark, is so awesome on that tarmac. Thank you so much. It's so fun to talk with you. Excellent, man. Well, I appreciate it. Rob Barnett, everybody, thanks so much. We'll talk to you soon. This story just really blew me away. When I started listening to this story, I was like, how is he going to do anything with this man? And I just cannot believe what he was able to pull off, especially at his age and with his title, given that he was 21 years old. He was just a local DJ in Worcester, and I lived in Boston. I know of Worcester. It is just like the suburbs of Boston. But what he was able to pull off with just sheer passion and confidence is amazing and inspiring and also just entertaining as fucking so cool. And there's a theme running through a number of our episodes in this podcast. You two, Beastie Boys, my story, this story of young people that will stop at nothing to get close to this artist they love and actually interact with them. And in Rob's case, he came up with this whole scheme that they should do something. Like he convinced the band to pull off this crazy stunt and they did it. And it's the Rolling Stones. It's not some new band like who needs publicity. Yeah, no, I would have been satisfied with that story if it ended at the airport. Like just the fact that he got to talk to Mick and that Mick was willing to talk to him is like, that's a story in itself. And so the fact that it just keeps going and going is absurd. Well, that took a lot of guts to go onto a tarmac to basically stalk Mick Jagger as he's coming off a plane and for the security guard not to beat the crap out of him. And the fact that he still has that tape and he kept it, and you can hear Mick engaging with him as he's getting off an airplane. So props to 21-year-old Rob for pulling off the stunt of a lifetime. Yeah, he gets props and I get shame. When I try and scheme to meet my celebrities, you make me feel like I'm creepy. So how can I do it and not be creepy and be successful? Obviously, all of us we're close to the artist in a professional setting. We were either trying to work with them or we were working and got a chance to meet them. But to me, on a deeper level, what this says, Olivia, is what the show is about. You're impacted by these artists in such a profound way that it literally changes your life. This moment for Rob Barnett changed his life because it put him on the map. Everyone around the country heard that interview. He actually was able to pull off this club tour idea through his radio station that he came up with. He brainstormed and pitched it to them. And then he's there introducing the fucking Rolling Stones at 21. Olivia, use this inspiration, but do it in a smart way that will get what you want. Yeah, that's what I'm going to have to figure out because- The passion alone isn't enough. I don't know. I'm still really shocked about this whole airport situation, like hiding in a bush. I feel like Mick Jagger would be like, no, go away. Well, I think that is of the times, right? It was a much more loosey-goosey time and there wasn't the security that there is now and every move is planned out. You know, they're in a small airport. So 
And the truth is he was a professional. He was a DJ. He did interview people for his job. I'm sure the legitimacy of I work for this radio station was what allowed him to get the interview. Related to this is the part where he talks about listening to their rehearsal in the middle of the night outside of the farm. That is just so cool. So, so cool. I can't even imagine like how that group of people must have felt and must have been so fun to listen to their favorite band rehearse. I don't know. It's funny that like for those people who were there must have been absolutely life-changing and that passion that's just within us drives us to do these outrageous things sometimes. I think the other thing is this was not some ordinary band, right? It's one thing if they were like a good band that he was really into and they were a popular band, but the Rolling Stones are literally the pinnacle of rock and roll. It is the Beatles and the Stones. Everybody looks at as the Mount Rushmore of rock. It would be the Beatles and the Stones. So for 21-year-old Rob to get the Stones to talk to him, to go and promote the show with Ian Stewart around Worcester, and then to be able to not only introduce the Stones, but to be able to watch the Stones at their height at a 300-person concert. Let's remember, Olivia, this is when the Stones were probably at the pinnacle of their live powers. So what a story. That is so, so wild. I would do anything to see Billy in a small club. And she actually played a very small show at Amoeba Records in LA. But there has to be something so special about sort of like reverting to the early days and how they started. And these artists who were playing at small clubs, just trying to make it. And now they've more than made it. And that process of reflection must just be wild for them. You make a really good point. We always think about the fans and what it does for them, but I think you're right. At the time, this was really groundbreaking for a band of that magnitude who's playing stadiums to go play at a 300 capacity nightclub. It really is special for them to be so intimate with their closest fans, to play in that environment that brings you back to the beginning. So clearly the Stones took that inspiration from Rob. And the truth is, Olivia, now that's fairly normal. Like I saw Tom Petty play at a club because he wanted to do that kind of old school. But at the time, I don't think that was done a lot. So my hat goes off to Rob. You pulled this off, Rob. You made your career in that moment and took that career for decades at the top of your game. So this is a true sonic impact that changed a young man's life. Truly. This is the definition of a sonic impact and it paid off in so many ways. And one of them being the fact that he got to spend time with them moving forward. And even though he had multiple interactions and time spent with the stones, I'm sure he still is pinching himself. Like, I can't believe these people are talking to me. I can't believe they know who I am. So he really, he really made it happen for himself. And I admire that a lot. Well, I hope this show has been an inspiration to you, Olivia, as a young person where a lot of these stories happened about your age, that people were trying to figure out what they were doing or were starting their careers and were able to not only meet these folks, but to take that inspiration and do something with it. And I think your point is really well taken. Rob Barnett got to hang out with Stones over and over. He got to like spend time with Keith Richards in his hotel room. For most people, for most fans, that would be enough. And I think it says a lot about Rob and other people in the entertainment industry. It's a reason a lot of us achieve these goals because we have that passion and we won't give up. And we do whatever it takes within reason to achieve that goal. And so it doesn't just happen randomly. There's a reason that these sonic impacts happen. I agree. But I think we all have to admit that there is a fair amount of luck involved for all of these people. And they had some good luck. Life is a combination of luck, timing, and skills. That's the bottom line. You have to have all three of those. Well, that wraps up our discussion on this week's amazing episode about the Rolling Stones, episode five of the new season. We really hope that you enjoyed this story as much as we did. And if you think you have a sonic impact that would be good on our show, we would love to hear from you. Specifically coming from me as a younger person, I'm trying to diversify our show a little bit, get some more women, young artists, POC. So if you have any sonic impacts that are in those categories, we would especially love to hear from you. You can message us on Instagram, Sonic Impact 
podcasts and Facebook as well. And please review us, rate us, subscribe. It does make a difference. And you'll get to hear all of our great stories from Paul McCartney to you 2 to the Beastie Boys to Kiss. So that wraps it up, Olivia. You are the best. I love your take on these stories and on music. And keep on rocking, kid. (laughs) Thank you, Dad. You too. Keep on rocking. And we will see you all next time. But if you try sometimes, you might find. Hey guys, it's Miriam Love here, and I want to share something very special with you. Check out my new release, All In, the Spanish remixes, out now on Electric House Records. And always remember, be love, share love, all love. Available now wherever you listen to music. DC, I host the rock podcast, Back to the Arena, The Interviews. It's about a 30-minute podcast where I talk one-on-one with a band who has released new music. You can find us on all the best podcast sites like Spotify, Apple, Google, iHeartRadio, and more. If you're a rock band like me, subscribe today to Back to the Arena, The Interviews. Electric Acid. Electric Acid.